Well, thank you guys. Really appreciate that beautiful music. Good morning, everyone. You may have noticed just here up top, I want to say a quick thank you that things are a little bit different. And uh, thank you to Bob White. I know he's not here, but Bob has been working really hard to bring some of the changes that you're seeing in the sanctuary. And in fact, it's been a little bit of a you know, as things go, tough during COVID to get everything done on time and on the right schedule. So there was a couple weeks ago where we thought we were going to get the new carpet in and then all the pews were removed, removed, and then we learned that it was on back order so that it put the pews back in again. And so I know there was a team of people who've been moving these pews, which is not easy. So if you're part of that, thank you so much. And thank you to Bob and everyone who has been working on that. Can we just say thank you to them for that? And uh, we're going to just dive into 1 Peter, as was mentioned. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. You can follow along on the screen, or uh, you can just listen along as I read our text this morning. Before I get in, I just want to make a biblical case for why what we're reading was written by the best friend of Jesus. Okay, so the biblical case for why John is Jesus' best friend, if Jesus had a best friend, okay, if he needed such a category, which he probably didn't, but if he did have one, uh, we like to do these things, don't we? Just categorize all of our friendships. Um, One day, Jesus was, was walking along, teaching and doing ministry on the Judean countryside. And then he was approached by a local synagogue leader named Jairus, whose daughter was sick. And as he was on his way, he actually performed another miracle, you remember. But once he gets to Jairus' house, he picks three disciples. He picks Peter, James, and John. And he says, you three are going to come with me into Jairus' house. And then later on, they're doing some ministry, and they get to uh, this mountain called Mount Tabor. And Jesus says, we're going to go on a hike, but I'm only taking three of you. Same three guys, Peter, James, and John. And he takes them up onto, in our scriptures, called the Mount of Transfiguration. And they have this beautiful experience up there where they, they see God, and, and they commune with Moses and Elijah up there. So just the three of them, right? And then when we get to the cross at Calvary, we see uh, who's left of the disciples. It's John who's there. And then there's this really unbelievably tender moment that Jesus has with John as he turns to John and to his own mother Mary, and he says, Behold your mother. And so John is the one who's given Mary. Uh, John is the one who is now representing for us what it truly means to be the family of God. And so I don't know about you, but this is the type of relationship that best friends get to have, right? They get to be in the inner circle. They get to see things from the, the, the closest intimate connection possible. So as we read these words this morning, I want you to just feel how it's coming from somebody who knows what it means to be connected to Jesus intimately and what Jesus is truly about. Okay, so let me pray and then we'll read the scripture. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, that in this 
moment that we have to learn from your word that you would illuminate that which would teach us, that which would convict us, that which would uh, encourage us and give us energy to do your work. Lord, we pray that you would connect us to your vine um, so that we would know what it means to know you and, and to experience your love and to reflect that love into the world. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe... God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So you may have noticed as we've been going through this letter that there are these repeated themes, these accents that John, as a great communicator, really is driving home. And there's a context by which these words are being given to us, right? The church has experienced difficult times. There's been a split within the church. There's been some teaching that has led some people astray. And so there's some heartbreak within the church. And John is coming to, to teach and instruct how to prevent conflict from having uh, from happening, and how to continue to live in the life that God would desire for the congregation to live into. This morning, I want to draw out a theme that I think is really present in the whole book, but is certainly in this section, and uh, it has a theological term. So I want you to put on your theological cap this morning. And maybe some of you are excited about that, and others, it's okay. It may be a new experience for you. Um, but one of the great atonement theories that we see is really present in this book is uh, actually the title of the sermon. It's called the Christus Victor model of the atonement. And it, it, we find it here in our text as John is talking about uh, and asks this question, who is it that overcomes the world? And maybe one of the 
a really good identity statement for any Christian, any follower of the way of Jesus, is to say, I am an overcomer. Because if I'm following the way of Jesus, and I'm seeing how Jesus overcame, I too am invited to participate in this way of being in the world, to identify myself as an overcomer. This is an important framework right at the onset, right? Because it doesn't say we're not going to have tough times, challenges, things that are going to try and prevent us from doing the right thing or being the type of person or living the type of life we even desire to live. No, in fact, there is real opposition to those things. And yet, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, how he lived, how he died and rose again, he can teach us how to be overcomers, how to overcome these difficulties and obstacles. And the Christus Victor model is really focused on how the evil one, how the devil prevents us from the true life to living the true life that God wants us to live. So we're going to get into that this morning. You excited to talk about the devil this morning? Oh, yeah. Uh, first John, uh, verse, uh, uh, first John chapter 3, verse 8, is probably the biggest uh, text that points us to this model of Christus Victor, this atonement theory. Why did Jesus come? What did he truly accomplish on the cross? Well, it says in 1 John 3, 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to just destroy the devil's work. So the reason the Son of God came is to destroy the devil's work, to make us overcomers, to be an overcomer. Well, then that, asks, that begs the question, what is the devil's work? One of the first places we're introduced to the idea of the devil, to the idea of Satan in Scripture is in the book of Job and in the book of Zechariah. And the book of Job opens with a courtroom scene. And it is there in some heavenly courtroom where there's a conversation happening between Satan and between uh, Jesus and God, and they're discussing Job. And they're, they're talking about uh, all the people in the land and who's righteous, and they're saying, Job is righteous, but the accuser is the way that we would translate Satan in, in, in this uh, Jobin text. It's that he's a prosecuting attorney trying to find anything he possibly can against Job, anything that he could possibly find to accuse Job and to condemn him. We see allusions of this in the book of Zechariah as well. And then this is really picked up by 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be clear-headed. This is Peter speaking to a church. Keep alert. Your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we see this theme of accuser is one of the themes, not all of the themes, of how we might answer what is the devil's work out in the world? What is the work of the evil one? Well, to help me to kind of talk how this might relate to our real-life experience, I want to think through Kara Powell's three questions that she has uh, polled teenagers 
about what matters most to them as they go through adolescence. The three key questions, she says, that parents should ask their children about, and let's be honest, these are three questions you'll discover that we keep asking ourselves as well, but it's particularly important in the age of adolescence that these questions are answered well, and there's a searching for an answer for these questions. They will be very clear to you as I read them. The first one is, who am I? The second is, where do I belong? And the third is, am I really loved? Now, we do psychological research, so this is out of psychological research. Now, Carrie Powell uh, works over at Fuller Seminary, and she uh, does all of this research, and the feedback of adolescents was that these were the three core questions that they're asking. And the reality is that if we don't get good answers to these questions when we're young, it is really difficult to ask the next season of life's questions well. Maybe there are questions about forgiveness or about how to lead with responsibility, but if we don't get these three right, who am I? Where do I belong? Am I really loved? Then it is impossible for us to get to deeper, more mature questions as we move on. And I want to make the case this morning that these are actually the hunting ground for the accuser. Because if he can crack us on our answers to these questions, then he can really derail us significantly. Now, maybe you've had an experience like this. It may look something like this. So I'll be headed out to uh, maybe go visit uh, my parents or something like that. Katie and I have just tried really hard to get our two little ones in the car, get them all packed up, our car's full to the brim. Uh, we're driving out onto the road, and your, your pastor may or may not be that great at using his blinker, okay? <laughs> so he won't use his blinker. And then his loving wife, who's very concerned about her children in the back, will say, you need to use your blinker right now. And the instinct for me in that moment, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, I'm still praying about this, is not necessarily to say, oh, yes, honey, I should use my blinker. <laughs> my instinct is to say, this isn't a big deal. Why would you criticize me? What's the point of you telling me I need to be safer? Don't you know I've tried so hard to get the kids in the car with you and trying so hard and and then maybe we'll end up going back and forth about this for a little while. And then I'll start thinking in my head, wow, am I really a pastor? Like I'm having a conflict with my wife in the car. My kids are watching me in conflict with my, with my wife in the car. This is not who I'm supposed to be. Maybe I'm no longer qualified to be a pastor because I can't even be patient with my own wife who I'm committed to loving. And all of a sudden, it went from not using my blinker to why am I even trying to be a Christian? <laughs> am I allowed to be in church anymore? And if you grew up in church, you know that you have this massive guilt complex, right? That it's really easy to allow these voices, these voices of accusation that come and they're just attacking the foundation 
of who we are, and that is a funny example, a silly example, but this happens to us all the time in, the, in our internal minds as we struggle to live our daily lives, and it particularly comes at us, and I think I've used this before, or I know for me, when we're going through those halt moments, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, these are moments where, you know, we might be fully caffeinated with a nice smile at church. We're just sang some worship songs. We're feeling really good right now. But in those moments, those moments is where our mind can go to places that really take us further than we need to go. And we need really good answers. And when we are fully caffeinated and feeling good, we need to fortify ourselves with these answers to, as a community, remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel. And that's what John is doing. He's been giving us answers to these questions, robust, important answers to these questions. Who am I? I am a child of God, right? Where do I belong? The family of God, as we said that Jesus himself gave his own mother to John even though they weren't blood-related, that they saw each other as true, connected family. Am I really loved? How many times in this book have we seen John bring up what true love looks like? And one of the other things I, I want to just uh, talk about is we think about how we go from these halt moments, these moments of struggle that we either dwell on. Some of you are dwellers just repeating these difficult moments over and over and beating yourself up over and over and over again. The voice of the accuser moved into your own mental framework and you're really hurting your own self by just focusing endlessly on this cycle. Or maybe some of us like to go to the denial place where we're just like, eh, everything's fine, let's just keep moving on. Never really uh, 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 taking a moment to pause, to reflect, to think how my actions might affect others negatively. We just keep moving and moving and moving until it all falls apart, right? And one of the things that could end up happening if we're not careful is that we can let this internal voice, these internal insecurities become projections. We start projecting out onto others our insecurities instead of self-reflecting or letting the gospel define the answer to these questions. And sometimes, just sometimes, these, the voice of the accuser can come to church and start visiting the church. Now, maybe you've seen this as well. One of the bad habits of the Church of America, I'll make the case, is our tendency to minimize certain sins, our sins, maybe the ones that look nice and clean and we can bring to church, and also uh, maximize the sins of the external world and say, well, they're the deal, deal breaker sins. Those are the ones that don't belong within the church, within the community. And that's a way for us to participate in this toxic comparison, right? It's like, as long as I can kind of lower the bar for myself, uh, I'll feel better about myself. As long as there's somebody else doing worse than I am, then I feel like I have some sense of worthiness, some sense of belonging within the church. This becomes a religious habit in its worst form, where we can actually christen or sanction this type 
of negative thinking. We could think that if I'm blessed, if I have more than others, therefore I have the favor of God to the exclusion of others, right? And it's like, well, I'm favored because I'm prospering, but I have so much, and maybe my, my neighbor doesn't have that much. And this framework is really toxic in those types of ways where we're saying, well, I'm doing it right because I'm prospering. And my neighbor who's struggling, they can't even belong in the community because the voice of the accuser has been christened within the church to say, it's all about finding favor and prosperity and following the rules. And if you follow the rules, then this is what you get, the goodies at the end. Jesus is most explicit here. In Matthew 23, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. And so even though the presentation was good, even though the law was followed, there was a way in which the spirit within the Pharisees was dead. And so how do we begin to understand being an overcomer? I just spent some time trying to work out just one theme of the struggle that we go through, of the ways in which we feel challenged, challenged by life, challenged by the accuser. And so to get to the victory, I want to use... uh, a model that's laid out in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis' work, and last week Edgar used it as well. All of us preachers owe a great debt to C.S. Lewis. Um, But it's a famous scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You probably know it well. There's four children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They find this secret a porthole into a new world called Narnia. Right when they get to Narnia, they feel the presence of evil. And in fact, they'll later discover that there is an eternal winter that is going on in Narnia. The four of them go on for just a little while before they run into the witch who has this world under the oppression of winter eternally. And Edmund who is the sniveling, complaining one that nobody likes, um, is easily manipulated by the witch with some Turkish delights. Now, when I was a kid and I learned about this, my instinct was to not think Edmund was making a mistake, but want to get my hands on some Turkish delights. Anybody else? And then when I did, it wasn't as, as good as the book made it seem, right? Sorry to all the English people out there, but. So he's taken off by the white witch, and there they are, uh, and, and, and we discover it's not just the Turkish delights, but now he's being offered some fake power and being manipulated by the white witch. And, and the other three are sort of eluding the white witch until they run into Aslan, this great lion. And they eventually plan with Aslan to go rescue Edmund. This is a successful rescue. They bring him back, even though he really betrayed them, and they bring him back into the fold, and he begins this process of restoration. Well, the, the witch is 
not happy about this, and so she goes on the move to find Edmund, to find the other three children, and to find Aslan. And her case is against Edmund. And her case is that the law in Narnia says that blood is demanded for the betrayal of Edmund. And in this famous scene, the lion, Aslan, roars, right? And he says, don't you tell me about the law. I was there at the beginning. But we discover that the witch is actually right, that there is a law in which there is a demand of blood for this type of betrayal. But Aslan decides what he is going to do is take the stead of Edmund. He goes in Edmund's place. And you know the story because it mirrors the story of Calvary, right? He's embarrassed and mocked and then killed. But then to everyone's astonishment, he comes back to life. And this is what he says, this is what Aslan says about how that was possible. He says this, Though the witch knows the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which, did not, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Now what I love about the Christus Victor model displayed here, right, that the law demanded death, but actually the law is the voice of the accuser. Some of you know Les Mis. This would be like the voice of Jovert, right? the legalistic one, the voice of the law in its most dark and manipulative and pharisaical. It just can't understand this type of love. It can't plan for it. It can't manipulate it. It can't stop it. Because it, it has no framework for it. The theologian Greg Boyd, who's done a lot of work in this model, talks about how even the demons, when Jesus interacts with the demons, they can recognize who he is, but they have no idea what he is going to do or why he would do it. Because they cannot understand self-sacrificial love like this witch. She could never prevent love from coming into the world because she couldn't strategize for how to stop it. This is made most clear in Romans 12, 21. And it, it's not just a pithy statement. This is a way to teach Christians how to behave in the world to overcome the evil of the world. It just says this, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. You see, as long as we're playing the devil's poker, meaning whenever we're playing this game, 
that so many times we've been convinced is the only game to play in this life, where we go tit for tat with one another, that by the law we accuse one another, that we figure out a way for us to be superior to the other by either following the rules or having the right way of looking at life, that what we do is we continue to play the game the devil wants us to play. This is made so clear in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you catch it? Because of who God is, because he sent Jesus into the world and made himself vulnerable to the voice of the accuser, to the devil, made him vulnerable to all kinds of attacks of the world Every kind of obstacle was thrown before him. Every kind of temptation was thrown before him. But in his willingness to self-sacrifice and die on our behalf, he overcame. And then he says, I no longer hold your sins against you. That means that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he does right now. Because it's not about you. You didn't prop him up so you can't take him any lower. He is high and lifted up. And his work is accomplished. He has overcome. And so in light of that, how do you define yourself? How do you uh, see yourself? How do you know where you're headed and what the world is uh, going to experience in the end? In Revelations 12.10, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Evil cannot understand love. And so maybe we just ask ourselves this morning, what game are we playing? What world are we living in? Have we received this promise that we're a new creation and our behaviors can be in consistency with the way of Jesus that we might sacrifice, not even for our own blood, but for those who are guilty, those who are condemnable in our eyes. And yet to God, they are precious children. And he forgives us all the same.
because of who he is. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this awe-inspiring truth that you love unconditionally and that love wins. That love wins the world. That love wins our hearts. That love makes it possible for us to live life because of your blood, because of your spirit, because of the waters of baptism, because of the eternal life that you've made possible here and now. We thank you and we praise you and we ask that you would give us new eyes and new ears so that we can truly receive this wonderful word from you. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.